it happens more than you think. A woman on a flight to Oakland, California, ended up in Auckland, New Zealand. The gate agent casually glanced at her boarding pass. It was a costly mistake. A Bethesda, Maryland man was headed to Granada, Spain. When 20 minutes into his flight, he realized that he was flying to the West Indies island of Grenada. A grandpa and grandson in Amsterdam were planning to vacation in Sydney, Australia. And they arrived in Sydney, all right. But when they exited the plane, they found themselves in Sydney, Nova Scotia, in Canada. Of course, the moral of the story is clear. Before you board a plane, make sure you know where it's headed. And the same is true with a church. Check your boarding pass. Make sure your church and its leaders are headed in the proper direction. Today and next time, I want to talk to you about our church, our values, our destination. We want you to get on board. You know we don't just come to church. We are the church. That's why we all need to be part of a church we believe in, in a church that we can cheer and support and serve. Obviously, our church is part of a family of churches called Calvary Chapel. And though each Calvary Chapel is autonomous, we share certain values and certain approaches. This morning, this is what I want to discuss with you, some Calvary Chapel approaches and some certain distinctives of our church. Our text today is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This word translated workmanship is a wonderful word. It's from the Greek word poema. This is the word from which we get our word poem. As individual believers, we are God's work of art, His poema. We're His masterpiece. We're His own unique and special creation. Like a poet who organizes rhyme and meter, or a sculptor who molds the clay, or a composer who arranges the notes, God is shaping us into a sonnet of His salvation, into an ode to His amazing grace. And not only are we as individual Christians a poema, I believe that Calvary Chapel is also a poema. It's a work of God. It's a special and unique work of God for these last days. It was birthed first through Chuck Smith in the Calvary Chapel in Southern California. And now it's been birthed over and over again through Calvary Chapel pastors all around the world. Years ago, when we started our church, I wanted to be part of a fellowship that was as close to the church in the book of Acts as I could find. Simple, yet powerful. My search led me to Pastor Chuck in Calvary Chapel. Our goal has never been just to plant a big church, but to be a certain type of church. We have tried to stay true to the model in Acts and the poema that we call Calvary Chapel. This morning, I'd like to lay out for you 12 approaches that when taken together make up what I feel like is the heart of Calvary Chapel. Here they are, our approach to grace, to people, to children, to worship, to the scriptures, to church doctrine, to the Holy Spirit, 
to membership, to ministry, to money, to church government, and to the rapture. Hey, if we're like every other church in the community, why take up space? We'd be better off closing our doors and throwing in with someone else. But God makes different types of churches to reach different types of people. And He has a unique purpose for us. First, this morning, I want you to recognize Calvary Chapel's approach to the grace of God. John chapter 1, verse 17 tells us, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. I like the phrase, grace is love that's on the house. God's grace was paid for by the sacrifice of Jesus and now comes to us freely. God saves us and blesses us, not because of our good works or our religious deeds, but for no other reason than His amazing grace. Hey, when I come to Jesus, God takes me just as I am and right where I'm at. He plants His Spirit inside me, and He works in me. He works in my life from the inside out. It's not up to me to do this or to do that, but to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, to live my life by faith. You see, grace and works are mutually exclusive ways of approaching God. You can't trust in grace to obtain God's favor and then turn around and trust in your own works to maintain it. It's one or the other. Galatians 3 verse 3 says it best. If you begin in the Spirit, don't try to be made perfect through the flesh or through your own elbow grease. The churches I grew up in hammered us weekly about what we should and shouldn't be doing for God. The do's and the don'ts. The theme was try, try, try. But as you read the New Testament, you find that its emphasis is not on what we should be doing for God, but on what God has already done for us. The theme is trust, trust, trust. I grow spiritually not by striving to be righteous through my own efforts, but by realizing that I'm already as right with God as I can get through Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 tells, it, tells us we love Him because He first loved us. God's grace is what supplies me with the incentive to be holy and to witness and to serve and to love my neighbor. The more I realize God loves me, the more I want to love Him in return. A Calvary Chapel distinctive is an emphasis on God's grace. Which leads us to, the, to our approach to people. For we want our church to be a grace place. Grace is more than just a line on a doctrinal statement. It should characterize the way we treat one another. If God loves us just as we are and right where we're at, then that's how we need to love one another. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, the prophet, he was, he, he was told, the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God doesn't look at the color of our skin or the cut of our hair or the clothes that we wear. God looks behind the veneer, behind the facade. God sees the heart. And this is how we should look at each other and treat each other. God's love transcends racial and cultural and economic barriers. God's grace is grace for every race. Grace picks people up despite their background or problems. It elevates them as children of God. It forgives them and fixes them, and then it unites them in a common future. Heaven will be a hodgepodge of people, 
And the church today should reflect those same demographics. One of the distinctives of a Calvary Chapel is a warmth and an acceptance of all people. Hopefully anybody from any walk of life or any situation or any political persuasion can walk through those doors and sense God's love for them. The first Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa began in the mid-1960s when the people flocked out to, or the people reached out to the hippie culture that had flocked to Southern California. And the church opened its doors and reached out to the hippies. And Calvary Chapel has been reaching out to disenfranchised folks ever since. See, here's what happens in a grace place. Folks who aren't accepted anywhere else become accepted. People who aren't loved get loved. Remember on the night before Jesus was crucified, he told his followers that the world will know that we're his disciples by our love for one another. 1 Corinthians 13 teaches us that the greatest of God's gifts is love. And while we're talking about our love for people, let's talk about our love, our approach to the little people, to our children. You know, once the disciples, they made the mistake of thinking that the master was too busy for kids. When they turned the children away. Jesus rebuked them. He said, allow the little children to come to me. Jesus loves kids. In our children's ministry, from nursery up to middle school, we try to create an environment where learning about Jesus is fun. One thing is certain, the kids are definitely loved. This morning in the first service, I mentioned Marsha Martin. She served in our nursery for nearly 20 years. She started when she was 10. Her commitment to our kids and the next generation is priceless. And she's one of just many, many volunteers who give them themselves in our children's ministry. You see, here's our belief. Because Jesus loves children, we need to muster the effort, spend the money, whatever it takes, to teach our kids on their level. We want our children looking forward to coming to church. We want church to be exciting for the kids. And this is why we run our children's ministry simultaneous with our adult worship and Bible study. It spares the kids the boredom of an adult service. And it provides a worship experience that's fun and relevant to the kids. One Sunday, Kathy was out of town, and I brought my three oldest kids with me to church. Nick was just a kindergartner, kindergartner at the time, but he was mature for his age, and, and I thought he could sit next to me during the service that morning. Man, was I wrong. As I started to teach, he launched his little paper airplane. And with each pass, its flight pat plat pattern grew larger and larger. Before long, that paper airplane was buzzing the altar from one end to the other. He was buzzing it with that little paper airplane while I was trying to teach a few feet away from him. And that morning did it for me. I concluded that God made preschoolers to learn by exploration, not by sitting for 30, 45 minutes through a sermon. Hey, we are fighting against God when we expect a child to sit still for an adult-oriented service. Yes, the kids can distract the adults, but that's not the point. More importantly, it's unfair to the kids to expect them to do that. When I was a child, the church we attended had the traditional format. The kids and the parents attended in the sanctuary side by side. And here's what happened. The parents devised little ways to hold their child's attention. They'd play tic-tac-toe with their kid, or they'd count the ceiling tiles in the sanctuary, or the number of people in the choir. 
Not only were the parents unable to pay attention, but without realizing it, they were teaching their kids how to come to church and not listen. So by the time the kids got to the age where they could glean something from the service, they were already conditioned to ignore what was being said. This was tragic. We want our kids to be excited about church. And speaking of our Sunday services, let's talk about our approach to worship. The Bible tells us that the whole purpose of our existence is to worship God. We should tell God that we love Him. We should sing His praise. In worshiping and in glorifying God, humans not only please God's heart, but we find our greatest fulfillment. Realize we have nothing against a choir. In fact, oftentimes we organize choirs for special occasions. Right now we're planning a children's choir. But we want to avoid the impression that exists in some circles that the choir constitutes all the singers and the congregation is made up of the listeners. No, no, no. At Calvary Chapel, the whole congregation is the choir. You are the choir. And God is our audience. And here's the good thing. He's not a tough critic. He's not as tough as some of you guys are. God loves a joyful noise. Somebody told me this morning, they said, Pastor Sandy, when you get to heaven, you're going to sound really good when you sing. I, I don't know what all that meant, but God loves a joy, joyful noise. Of course, we do have worship leaders, but their job is to direct us to God. That's why they close their eyes. It's not because you're ugly and it hurts to look at you. It's because they're trying to focus in and direct their songs and their words to God. We want our worship to be personal and passionate. We're not just singing songs, but we're expressing our heart. The Bible also tells us to sing a new song. The same old, same old becomes mundane and loses its luster. That's why we're always interjecting new tunes into the, into the song set. At times we go overboard, and you tell us. But we're trying. And here's another conviction that we have in regards to our worship. Our expression needs to be voluntary and natural. Worship should rise spontaneously from an attitude of awe and wonder and gratitude and adoration for God. If a worship leader has to trump it up or hype up the people to worship, it becomes a flawed sacrifice, a blemished sacrifice. You won't have our worship leaders trying to rev us all up. Our worship needs to flow from our hearts to God's throne. Which leads to Calvary Chapel's approach to the Scriptures. We believe the Bible is divine truth, not human opinion. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, inerrant in the original writings, immutable in all that it teaches, preserved through the centuries for us and for future generations. But Pastor Sandy, what about modern attitudes toward sexuality and toward gender roles? Doesn't the Bible need an overhaul? And my answer to that is simple. Do you really think we've gotten smarter than God? His truth is timeless. The Bible doesn't need an upgrade for modern sensibilities. It needs to be rightly understood and then fearlessly obeyed. Oh, the method should change, but the message should never change. At Calvary Chapel, we don't just read the Bible as some religious relic. 
we open up this book and we turn its pages and we read its words and we dive into its meaning and we even dare to apply it to our lives. How could we do anything less? Tragically, the world today, even the church, suffers from an acute biblical illiteracy. Many Christians are ignorant of the book they supposedly cherish. The average believer today knows a few Bible stories and a couple of random verses, but they lack a comprehensive knowledge of the Scriptures. It's obvious the church has not been doing its job. As a pastor, I believe that I need to teach the book, the whole book, and nothing but the book. So help me God. It was A.W. Tozer who said, Nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. One of Calvary Chapel's priorities is the systematic study of the Bible. I once received a letter from a member of our church. It was one of those encouraging notes that a pastor holds on to and pulls it out and reads it on difficult days. At one point in the letter it read, Thank you for teaching God's Word and not a lot of other stuff. I appreciate that compliment, but quite frankly, I don't know what a pastor teaches who doesn't teach God's Word. The Calvary Chapel approach is to teach the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter and book by book and cover to cover. In our years as a church, we've now been through the Bible four times. Last week, we relaunched our Sunday night through the Bible study. Tonight, we'll be covering Isaiah chapters 4 through 6. And here's where I'm at. I love you. I want you to come on Sunday nights and learn God's Word. It's changed my life and it'll change yours. In fact, there are no shortcuts. Faith grows when we study the Word of God. But whether you come or not, at the end of the day, I want to be sure that I can stand before God and join in with the Apostle Paul when he said, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I am providing you that opportunity. What you do with it is up to you. Which brings up Calvary Chapel's approach to church doctrine. Just because we're non-denominational, that doesn't mean we don't know what we believe. We want to be contemporary in our methods, but traditional in our beliefs. In fact, we affirm all the historic doctrines of Christianity. The Bible's inerrancy. God's triune nature. That God created all things. The deity of Jesus. The atoning death and bodily resurrection. Salvation by grace through faith. The power of the Holy Spirit. The rapture of the church. The second coming of Jesus. On these crucial doctrines, we remain dogmatic and unbending. And yet there are other areas of Christian doctrine where we're more flexible. Does God elect or do we choose? We believe the Bible teaches both. We get into trouble when we try to reconcile two positions rather than just accept them as is. Some truths are revealed by God because they eclipse our reason. God doesn't tell us to cipher it all out, but to just believe what He says. This is why the best theology isn't some man-made system, but a working knowledge of this book that develops when we immerse ourselves in the Word of God. I like the old adage, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Remember, nobody has perfect theology, and thus humility is needed. Paul said, we see as in a mirror dimly. We're all still growing in our knowledge of God and His Word. That's why we need to be tolerant. We need to give each other room to grow. 
Once during a baptism, I had an older lady ask me if she could be sprinkled. She was uneasy about going under the water. And because I didn't think it was God's will for me to cause a woman to have a heart attack, I went ahead and sprinkled her. What mattered most to God, I'm sure, was that she had a desire to identify with Jesus. And yet we all know that churches have split and denominations have formed over this very issue. At Calvary Chapel, we believe that Jesus is the main thing. And our goal is to keep the main thing the main thing. In the non-essentials, we need to learn to disagree agreeably and not break fellowship over trivial issues. And while we're talking about doctrine, let me explain our approach to the Holy Spirit. This can get controversial. Certainly, we believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in the church today. In the Gospels, Jesus spoke of three experiences that a believer can have with the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus said that He is with us and that He is in us. The Holy Spirit is with us before we come to Christ. He convicts us of sin. He points us to the Savior. He dwells in us at our conversion to cleanse us and to transform us into the image of Jesus. But there is a third experience we can have with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus also said that the Spirit would come upon us. And this is what occurred on the day of Pentecost. And then afterwards, the Holy Spirit baptized His disciples with great grace and made them bold witnesses for Jesus. The experience was an overpowering and over outpouring experience of empowerment in their lives. And it was accompanied by spiritual gifts. At Calvary Chapel, we seek this power of the Holy Spirit. We believe the baptism of the Spirit and His supernatural enablings are still available to believers today. And as with all God's gifts, they're received by faith. And yet the question arises, where should these spiritual gifts be exercised? For example... Take the gift of tongues. We believe in tongues. It's a beautiful gift given by God as a means of praising Him in an uninhibited manner. But here's where our approach, I think, is both balanced and biblical. First of all, will everyone speak in tongues? In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 29 and 30, Paul is using a series of rhetorical questions. He asks, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all speak with tongues? And the obvious answer to all of those questions is no. Not everyone has the same spiritual gifts. That means that not everyone will speak in tongues. And then second, should the gift of tongues be exercised in the church's Sunday morning public assembly? This time, 1 Corinthians 14 tells us no. It tells us that the gift of tongues is reserved for a person's private devotions or for a small group of knowledgeable believers. There is a proper place and time for these gifts. Calvary Chapel believes in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but we also recognize biblical guidelines for the use of these gifts. Hey, we all want the fire of experience, but the fire of experience will rage out of control and burn down the house if it doesn't have the fireplace of Scripture to contain it. It's the fire of experience in the fireplace of Scripture that keeps the house warm. We want to do church by the book. Tragically, in some churches, weird stuff occurs in the name of the Holy Spirit, of which the Holy Spirit has no part. 
In John 15, verse 26, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. Notice two points here. First, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. He is the author of God's Word. That means that the Spirit will never do or say anything that contradicts the Bible. And then second, the Holy Spirit comes not to promote Himself, but to testify of Jesus. See, I worry about churches that are preoccupied with the Holy Spirit. My hunch is that the Holy Spirit's not leading them at all. If He was, the emphasis would be on Jesus, not the Spirit. A church truly full of the Holy Spirit will magnify and glorify Jesus. Another Calvary Chapel distinctive is our approach to church membership. In a sense, if you're a member of the body of Christ, you are a member of our church. we got a couple billion members. We want to embrace anyone who comes to us with a desire to fellowship in Jesus' name. Besides, if God accepts you into His family, who are we to keep you out of ours? We acknowledge that there's only one true church, one true family of God, made up of members in many churches. As to a formal membership, though, we don't have one. And here's why. I grew up in a church that had a thousand names on the roll. But only about 300 showed up on average Sunday. And yet we walked around bragging about having a thousand members. Hey, at Calvary Chapel, we've chosen to just let God take care of the paperwork, all right? You know, it really only matters that your name is written down one place. And that's in the book of life. Understand, Calvary Chapel is a fellowship. On a regional level, we're a fellowship of churches and pastors. On a local level, we're a fellowship of believers. We're followers of Jesus who have voluntarily agreed to live together in community. You see, the New Testament teaches that the church is more than an organization. It's an organism. It's a living, breathing body of believers coming together in Jesus' name. In the truest sense, you become a member of this church by being a member, by participation. My arm is a member of my body because it serves a function, not because it stepped forward and signed a card. Don't misunderstand. We believe in membership. It just needs to be redefined. You're a member of Calvary Chapel by hanging out with us and growing with us and serving God with us. And if you stop hanging out, you stop being a member. It's pretty simple. And speaking of serving together, let me mention our approach to ministry. For in a lot of churches, you have two groups. You have the pastors who are called the ministers and the people who are called the laity. And that means, basically, that the pastors do all the ministering and the people just lay around. (laughs) But at Calvary Chapel, we want every member to be a minister. Ephesians 4 teaches us that the pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. My role is not to do it all myself, but it's to teach you to be equipped to reach out and share your faith and to serve the Lord at home and at work and in the community, on the mission field, in the church. 1 Corinthians 12 likens the church to a human body. Every member is a part of that body and has a vital function. We believe that you too have a place in this body. We want to help you discover your role.
But here's a vital principle when it comes to service. Involvement in ministry should always be voluntary. Fruitful ministry comes from the heart. And it's led by the Holy Spirit. You know, when people are pressured or badgered into serving, or made to feel guilty if they don't, then they'll serve with strings attached. At Calvary Chapel, we're not going to plead, plead with you to serve. We're not going to beg you to do anything. We want you to be led by the Holy Spirit. We want you to step up and say, hey, how can I help? We're not going to pressure you or badger you to help even when we need your help. We're going to love people and we're going to teach people and then we're going to love people some more until they're finally equipped and until they're willing. We want everyone who serves to do so, not because they feel like they have to, but because they want to. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, God loves a cheerful giver. And I have found that a church full of cheerful givers is a really fun place to be. Which brings us to our approach to money. We believe that God's work done God's way will never lack God's support. Pastor Chuck had a saying that I now live by. He used to say, where God guides, He provides. And it's true. It's tragic when a pastor gets up in front of people and misrepresents God as if he's broke or on the verge of bankruptcy. If you don't help, that God needs our help. No, He doesn't. God has boundless resources at His disposal. Let me brag on God a bit, can I? In the 34 years that our church has existed, we have never passed an offering plate. We got boxes in the back. You know where they are. You don't need a plate passed under your nose to know that you have an opportunity to give. We trust God to put it on your heart to give. And He has seen to it that this church has never lacked the funds to pay a bill. There's always been enough. Hey, week after week, pastors tell their people to trust God. But then when the church springs a leak, they're prone to try and patch it by pleading and begging and tightening the screws and just happening to feel led by God to preach a sermon on tithing. Pastors should trust God themselves to provide for the finances of the church. This is what our leadership tries to do. We do recognize that you're the ones that drop the offerings in the offering box. We figure the angels don't make too many contributions. But i got to tell you, we're looking past you. We're looking to the God who prompts you to give. We're looking to Him. We believe that our sufficiency comes from Him. I do believe that the Bible holds up tithing 10%. The Bible holds that up as a good guideline for our giving. But you know, it also teaches that we're free from the law to walk in the Spirit. And thus, I'm not about to legislate when and how much anyone should give. The amount, the percentage, the destination of your gift is really none of my business. Besides, if I insisted on you giving 10%, God might tell you to give 15%, and I'd cheat you out of a bigger blessing. Hey, let's all just give as the Holy Spirit leads us to give. Let me just say, God has given us all so much. How can we not want to give back a great portion to Him? And the more we give to Him, the more He gives us in return. You know, giving to God is like serving God. It should also be done 
because people want to, not because they feel like they have to. Again, God loves a cheerful giver. A person once asked me, Sandy, I just can't believe that you guys don't take an offering. You, you must have one extremely wealthy backer funding your church. I just smiled and said, ah, you figured us out. His name is Jesus Christ. Another Calvary Chapel distinctive is our approach to church government. For when it comes to church leadership, we believe in servant leadership. That the highest ranking person among us should be the servant of all. Humility is a must. You know, in some churches, people look to their pastor as a status symbol. They want him to live at the rung on the social ladder to which they aspire. The Jews wanted the same of Jesus. They tried to make him their king. But Jesus refused elevation. He kept insisting on the low road. And he expects his leaders to be servants. The people of this church don't exist to serve the pastors. It is the pastors who exist to serve the people. When it comes to church government, realize that the church is not a democracy run by the people. Nor is it a monarchy run by the pastor. It's a theocracy. It's run by God's Spirit. This means that the leaders of this church should be on their knees seeking God for direction, while the followers should be on their knees asking God to bless and guide their leaders. And under the headship of Jesus, we believe the biblical structure for church leadership involves three groups. The pastors, the elders, and the deacons. First, the pastor is responsible to feed and lead the people. You know, one day... God is going to hold me responsible for the spiritual nourishment and direction of Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. Thus, I need the freedom to hear from God and to follow God. You know, throughout the Bible, from Moses to Peter, God chose men. He anointed a man, not a committee, not a caucus. And He led His people through this servant leader. Calvary Chapel believes in strong pastoral leadership. The idea of democracy, that everyone votes. That's an American idea, but it's not God's plan for the church. You'll never find it in the book of Acts. Realize a pastor isn't a hired hand, an employee of the church. He's a shepherd who loves the flock. If you want a hired hand, fine. But at the first sign of trouble, he'll abandon the sheep. It's just a job to him. It's just a paycheck. And yet a shepherd loves the sheep. He makes sacrifices and takes risks and lays down his life for the sheep. Hey, you want your pastor to be a shepherd. And in the church, pastors need to lead, but they also need help in doing so. Pastors lead, but they don't do it in a vacuum. They're assisted by the elders who help oversee the spiritual needs of God's people. They're also assisted by the deacons, both men and women, who serve the church in practical ways. The deacons are the designated doers, the select servants, I call them. They lead by example. To me, the church has made a mistake down through the centuries in being dogmatic about church structure while compromising the quality and characters, character of the leaders who feel that structure. Our attitude should be just the opposite. We should be flexible and practical with our structure, but we should never lower the bar on the spiritual qualifications of the leaders involved. 
Well, finally, let me touch on the Calvary Chapel's, our approach to the rapture. You know, it's a big deal to us. We plan to participate. We believe that Jesus has promised to return in the clouds and airlift His church into the presence of God. The Bible promises that those who are in Christ will be saved from the wrath to come. Hey, before God's judgment comes down, the church is going up. And we believe that Jesus can return for us at any time. Nothing else needs to happen before we're raptured. Theologians call this the doctrine of imminence. The return of Christ is imminent. And this is why we believe that the rapture occurs before the final seven years of great tribulation. For any other timeline, and it means that something else has to happen first. Under other scenarios, you're no longer looking for Jesus Christ, but for the Antichrist. Heaven forbid. We believe that the Bible wants us looking for Jesus 2 Timothy 4 verse 8 promises a special crown to all who love the Lord's appearing. The pre-trib rapture is more than an eschatological theory. It's our blessed hope. And it has a purifying effect. Knowing that He can return at any moment keeps me on the edge of my seat. It keeps me from getting bogged down in the things of this world. The imminent return of Jesus fixes my heart on eternity. Well, in conclusion, let me admit that this Calvary Chapel, or any Calvary Chapel for that matter, is not a perfect church. We have our shortcomings and our deficiencies. And I am certainly not the perfect pastor. If you know me, you realize just how true that really is. Hey, we're just believers hanging on to Jesus. We're saved by grace. But by grace, God is redeeming our dignity as His children, and He's shaping us into His image. The one thing that we really want to be is genuine. And now that you know who we are and what we value, I hope you'll climb on board. I hope that you'll make this church your church. Help us be God's poema, His work of art. Together, we are God's workmanship.